All right, so have you uh, been watching the news lately? Might be a silly question. If you're like me, you're tuning in pertinent every day to see what the newest uh, details are as the world seems to be like last night in the parish. It seems to be burning to the ground, doesn't it? The world is in a mess right now. We've got military battles raging. We've got civilians fleeing. We've got governments and uh, global bodies like NATO and the UN and, and these big bodies. Uh, they're condemning Russia. They're, they're moving their militaries. They're putting in sanctions. A lot of upheaval. The world is in a mess. It's troubled times. And then think about all the individuals and families caught in the middle. And if what we're seeing reported is anywhere close to accurate, it's, it's pretty barbaric out there. It's pretty bad. What about our brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, who are suffering danger and loss and separation from family, from home, at the hand of these seemingly godless actors and nations? Is it easy in times like these for God's people to be overwhelmed? Overwhelmed by the magnitude of events? Perhaps to lose our footing a little bit? Especially when the trials that are being faced are really big and last a long time. Can we be guilty of allowing the voices that we hear from the world, from the world stage, from the newscasts, from governments, all of this, all of this is coming in, all these voices. Can we be guilty of letting them shape our thoughts and undermine our hope and lead us away from confidence in God? Maybe we're even tempted to hope in lesser things, lesser saviors, if you will. So in times like these, I feel like that it's helpful to be reminded afresh of God's unchallenged rule, his unchallenged rule and reign over everything. That's all nations, that's all peoples, all political and military powers, all of it. And so for this fresh reminder, please join me in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. As you're turning there, just a little background. Isaiah is a tremendous book. Uh, if you have not read through it, I encourage you to. It's sometimes called the gospel according to Isaiah because there's so much Jesus in there. Of course, we would expect that because it's the scripture. But in this long book, Isaiah has much to say about events in his own day and about events that were to come from his point in time, that namely the captivity of Babylon, when Judah would be exiled to Babylon. Uh, he has much to say about God's great deliverance, both of Israel from that captivity, and then later, God's deliverance of his chosen people of all nations, of all ages, through his suffering servant that would come the Lord Jesus. So Isaiah is rich. In chapter 46, it falls in the middle of a larger section, kind of stretches from chapters 
44 to 48, uh, this larger section where God is dealing with um, contending for his own glory. If you read chapters 44 through 48, it really helps fill out what he says in 46. I'd encourage you to do that later. Not during the sermon, of course. (laughs) But it fills it out because God's contending for his glory over uh, mighty Babylon, over their gods, even over what would come later, the uh, invasion of the Medo-Persian Empire and the the uh, conqueror that would lead them, Cyrus the Great. He's actually even named by name in chapter 45, almost 200 years before he was born. Kind of neat. And then it comes to pass. That little detail shows up in our text today too, so you might keep that in mind. God is showing that he is more glorious. He is greater than all of these things even over his wayward people, as it will show up today in the text too. So we get a little, a little taste of all these pieces in chapter 46 that he deals with in the larger section. So I hope you're hungry. Come on, put on your bibs, get your knife and your fork out, because this chapter is like a full-course meal, and there's a lot of meat in it. And I'll have to apologize ahead of time that uh, we're not going to be able to unpack everything that's here. I was uh, making my notes, and... Man, they were getting longer and longer and longer. I thought, they're not going to appreciate this. <laughs> I cut out a lot to try to focus in on uh, our current situation and the concerns we may be having in the midst of them. But there's so much more here that can be mined out. God's Word is just like that, isn't it? It's a deep well. You're not going to hit bottom. It's rich. And with the Spirit's help in understanding it, you always find more to rejoice in and more that reveals the greatness of God. So it's my prayer that uh, uh, in our time today, that with God's grace, we can find help and find that grace that we need in this time from these verses. But before we begin, let's seek the Lord's blessings together, and then we'll read. So Father, we are grateful to you for this day, this Lord's day. You are God, there is no other. You're God, there is none like you. And we, uh, as your people, rejoice in you and we praise you together today as we have through song and, and through uh, the rejoicing together in fellowship in the gospel and now, Lord, through your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you be our help. We are weak. We are short-sighted in our own strength. Our understanding only goes so far. And we need to see you. So pray, I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would be our help. Turn on the light so we can see. Open our minds to understand. Teach us from your word. And help us, I pray, to have a bigger vision of you than when we walked in this morning. Because you are more grand than we can even imagine. Help your people, I pray. And help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 46. We'll take the the whole chapter. This is God's word. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry 
are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We thank the Lord for his scripture. Pray that he adds his blessing to the reading of it. I summarize the point of this chapter like this. So if you're a note taker, Time to get started. This is how I'm summarizing what the Lord is saying in this chapter. The idols of mankind and all our objects of hope cannot begin to compare to the magnificence, to the radiance, to the glory of the Lord God Almighty who reigns with indomitable sovereignty over nature, over history, over empires, over godless world conquerors, and over his own saving purposes. And so, where I'm aiming at this morning is, if the object of your hope, those things that we place our hope in, if the object of your hope this morning is anything other than the one true and living God, it is a vain hope and it will fail you. So as we watch these global events we mentioned a few minutes ago, as they continue to unfold before our eyes and we hear the voices saying all sorts of things, may the Lord open our eyes to His greatness, to His magnificence, to His indomitable sovereignty. That's a fancy word. I wanted to use it, but it means... He cannot be dominated. He cannot be overcome. His sovereignty is not in danger of failing. 
His indomitable sovereignty over all things that come to pass at all times. And may He establish our feet on a rock-solid hope that's found in God alone through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's where I'm aiming. So let's see how the text gets us there this morning. So the chapter is divided in a structure. It's kind of poetic in the way that it's structured into stanzas. There's five stanzas, and so we're going to divide our study along those lines this morning. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Baptist preacher, but I have five points instead of three, so forgive me for that. I think we'll still be okay. First stanza, note this. The idols who must be carried by their people. Again, verse 1 begins, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Now this is not talking about Mount Nebo, which may come to mind, but these are Babylonian gods. The Babylonians, they, they looked to their gods for blessing, for victory, for security, for riches, satisfaction, prosperity, all the same things that we look for and hope for. They looked to their gods for these things. Baal and Nebo, these were their two chief gods among many. And these two they honored in the names of their kings, uh, like Belshazzar, Daniel, the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, named after that god. And each year at their New Year feast, the Babylonians, they carried these idols through their city. Now, Babylon was a world power. It was uh, the world power at one point in history. And, and every year they honored their gods. They paraded them through their capital city of Babylon with all the pomp that the kingdom could muster, delighting in what their own minds and their own hands had made. Yet these idols in which they hoped, which they found their security in, would prove worthless when Babylon fell. Look again in verses 1 and 2. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. They're being hauled away. These things that you carry, these gods that you carry, are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden. But themselves go into captivity. The gods themselves, the idols that they had created, that they bowed down to and worshipped, would be carried away as spoils of war, helpless, unable to save themselves. Nothing more than a heavy burden on the back of a beast of burden as they were hauled off. Now, if you know your history... Persia, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, was the one that did this. Cyrus the Great led them in. But think about that. Idols having to be carried. Gods needing to be carried. Turn back a page, if you will, to chapter 44. And listen to how God ridicules this folly. I mean, it's... it's it's really ridiculous, isn't it, to think that a God must be hauled around. Listen to how God 
ridicules this. Isaiah 44, we'll start in verse 12. The ironsmith, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works with it, or works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Paul's there. So he's pouring all of his effort and all of his energy and all of uh, his might into creating this God until he wears himself out. Verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house that is a temple. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants the cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Can you see the ridicule in the Lord's descriptions? They take the wood, take part of it and burn it in the fire and, and use it for their purposes. They take the other part of the same wood, fashion an idol, and worship it, crying out to it to deliver. Oh, the blind folly of worshiping what we ourselves devise. Now, surely, surely, we're in the advanced modern age, right? We're not carrying on with such foolishness, are we? Not so fast. It seems to me like we're just all the more creative than ever before at producing idols. Not only are there literally millions of people in the world this very morning bowing down to handmade idols, but we fashion idols out of anything. We don't need wood to make an idol. We don't need gold in order to make something in which we place our hope and something to which we look for deliverance. We might do this from political theory, we might do this uh, out of science, turn it into an idol. We might have idols of vain pleasures or maybe even ideals that we believe will make life worth living. Anything and everything in which our hearts delight more than our Creator is an idol. So, as you're sitting here in church this morning, are you harboring idols in your heart? Hoping, delighting in something else rather than your creator. Now, I'm not asking what do you say, because we'll all say the right stuff. Where is your trust? Is it in God? So the idols that must be carried by their people. So now this, this 
folly of idolatry, it, it comes into a little bit clearer focus as we move to the next stanza. So the Lord begins to draw a contrast for us. He speaks this way, and then now he's going to speak in a contrasting way to draw the picture for us. So notice second, the true God who carries his people. You've got the idols who are carried by their people, and now you have the true God who carries his people, verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. So the Babylonian gods, they needed their people to haul them around preposterous. The true God does not need us to give him a ride. In fact, he doesn't need anything we might try to offer him. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul was speaking to the, those uh, philosophers in Athens on one of his missionary journeys, and he begins to explain to them what the true God is like. He says in Chapter 17 of Acts, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing, yet he gives us everything. He carries his people. He's not carried along by us. He's not dependent upon us. The true God carries his people. He gives to us. We have nothing to offer him that he needs. John Calvin put it this way, that the Lord carries his people like a mother who carries a child in her womb and afterwards carries carries this child in her bosom. The child is entirely dependent upon the mother, right? And the picture helps us to see that God's people are entirely dependent upon him. It's not the other way around. You know, when I read verse 4 there, I can't help but being reminded of Psalm 23 and the Lord who is our shepherd. It says here in verse 4, Even to your old age I am he, to gray hairs I will carry you, I have made, I will bear I will carry and will save. And the psalmist in Psalm 23 portrays the Lord as a shepherd who shepherds us all the way home. He leads us to the the still waters that we need. He leads us to those green pastures. He restores our soul. And wherever it is that he leads us, through the green pasture, the dark valley, he leads us all the way home. And of course, when I think of the Lord as my shepherd... I think of Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep, whom he said lays down his life for the sheep. About Jesus, you know, Isaiah wrote a bunch about him too, and he also wrote these words in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See those same words? He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. So verse 4, I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save.
Oh, there's gospel gems sparkling all in these verses. But we must continue to move along because God takes his contrast with idols even further in the stanza three where we notice the true God who is beyond compare. Okay, so this really begins to have a divide between the the gods that we create and the, the one true God who is beyond compare. So he begins with a question in verse 5 when he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? How would you answer that question? If the Lord called you by name and asked it of you, expecting an answer. Can you think of anyone or anything that might come within a million miles of comparing with the infinite one. One commentator, Matthew Henry, said it like this, it's absurd to make any comparison between the creature and the creator since between infinite and finite there is no proportion. That is to say, there is no measuring the degree to which God is higher, the degree to which God is greater. There is no trying. Forget about it. To whom will you compare me, Lord asks. In verses 6 and 7, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his troubles. So are you picking up on the absurdity of the whole thing? What about the way that the Lord is repeating certain words to draw this out for us? Verses 1 and 2, idols you carry are born away into captivity. So the idols that the Babylonians had toted around and put in their place are now being hauled off by another empire. They cannot save themselves. How can they save you if they can't save themselves? Verses 3 and 4, You have been born by me, the Lord says, carried from the womb. I will carry and will save. Verse 6 and 7 here uh, about the idols. It says the people lift it. They carry it. It cannot move. It does not answer or save. You see those repeated words? It's, it's on purpose. He's saying it this way so you see what the idols cannot do and how great the Lord truly is. So he asks, will you compare me to the idols that you fashion by your resources and your skills? Verse 6. Will you really choose to bow down to such vain, lifeless things that cannot move or hear, or save, verse 7. I want us to be careful not to only picture a statue. Our idols can be all manner of things. Our idol can be looking at us in the mirror even. It can't get any clearer than what the Lord is doing right here. The Lord God Almighty has no equals not even close. He fears no rival. He suffers no defeat. 
And he knows not the sorrow of failure. Because in his perfections, he cannot fail. His purposes cannot be thwarted. If he purposes something, nothing can stop it. Job says, your purposes cannot be thwarted. So how blind and lost in darkness must we be to rest our hope in lesser things which cannot stand uh, when things start heating up, when things start falling apart. So this it, it, it keeps building as we keep moving through the text. So this becomes even more clear as we come to the stanza number four. As God de- de- declares his own surpassing majesty. So notice here, the true God of indomitable sovereignty. There's my fancy word again. Verses 8 and 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. So amidst all the confusion of idolatry and in the time that uh, Isaiah is prophesying, these were written to the future uh, Israelites who would be in captivity in Babylon and all the confusion that they had living in a pagan world, a pagan uh, empire that had all these gods around, all the confusion. The Lord lays out for us what makes Him utterly unique. He lays out for us here in this stanza what sets him apart in a class all by himself. He lays out for us what it means for God to be God. So as, as uh, John Piper points out, he, he preached a sermon and he said this. When something is happening or something is being said or thought and God responds, I am God, or in the In the law, for example, he he says, I am the Lord. When God responds that way to whatever's going on, which he does here in verse 9, the point is, it's as if God's saying, you're acting like you don't know what it means for me to be God. So he tells them what is at the heart of his godness. He tells them in this, this stanza what it is at the core, what it means to be God. So let's read it again. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, that is to say, all that he has done in the past. Go read your Bible. We might uh, paraphrase it. Verse 9, remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that is is to say, uh, Cyrus the Great, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Let this sink in deep. Let this sink in all the way to the bone. From time eternal, God decreed everything that will come to pass. And along the way, He brings those things to pass. To be God means 
that he exercises sovereign control over everything from beginning to end. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel, that is to say the things that he's declaring, shall stand. And how is it that they shall stand? I will accomplish all my purpose. I will do it. He decides and controls everything from the smallest detail to the greatest. And it will certainly come about because he is the one who brings it about. Verse 11, he ends it similarly. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That's what it means to be God. If you can't do that, then you ain't God. Brothers and sisters, it's right here. This is what gives us stability in this volatile world that's all topsy-turvy. So let's bring it home and apply it to that original concern we talked about with all the war and all the chaos in the world. When we take shelter in this God, the God of the Bible, the one who in verses 3 and 4 say He made us, who carries us, will save, the one reigning over all that comes to pass whatsoever, who has a purpose for all of it. When we take shelter in Him, when He is our hope rather than lesser things, idols of whatever flavor we prefer, when our hope is in Him, then our foundation will never be moved. You are standing on bedrock and it will not fail. War cannot move it. Vladimir Putin cannot move it. Neither can anything else in all creation, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. You know, I noticed in the bulletin before coming up here, there's a, several quotes, and one of them by Charles Swindoll says, Anything under God's control is never out of control. I like to say it like this. There's no such thing as an out-of-control situation. Why? Because God controls everything. And He has declared what's coming. He brings it about. There's purpose to all of it. And that can give you steady footing. That can help you sleep at night and bring peace to your rest. So where is that, that granite foundation for the Ukrainian believers that are on our hearts and minds? Where can they stand while their families are scattered, while their country is obliterated? Where is the bedrock foundation upon which you and I can build our lives and build our eternity? We stand firm, though all the world collapse around us, by beholding the Lord, the one true God, in all of His glory. Is your God that big? We forsake all our misplaced hopes, our idols, which cannot begin to compare with His magnificence, with the radiance and the glory of the Lord God Almighty, who reigns with, here it is, indomitable sovereignty over nature, 
over history, over empires, over godless world conquerors, and, we still have another stanza, and over his own saving purposes, which come into view now in this last stanza. This is the fifth one, so notice finally, the true God who saves. Verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. He's addressing his, his people again, wayward Israel. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So in these last verses here, the Lord, He exhorts His people who have seemed to have lost their way under the heavy thumb of that oppression and that captivity that they were within. He exhorts them and calls them, those stubborn of heart, those far from righteousness, those who have left the narrow way, and He calls them to listen to Him. Unstop the ears, pay attention, heed the words of God, because He graciously promises them salvation. Now, in context here, it is salvation in the form of Babylon's destruction and their liberation. They would be able to return to the promised land once Babylon fell. So that's within the historical context, that's what's in view. Yet the emphasis in these verses is not so much how the Lord will bring salvation as it is that these verses are calling them to return to their sovereign God who saves. Okay, so he's not so much saying, all right, pay attention, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do this. Rather, he's saying, listen to me. Heed my words, turn to me, for I will save. Idols cannot save. God alone saves. He's the only Savior for Israel in exile. He's the only Savior from the trials and hardships and calamities that we face in life. The sadness, the loss. And He is the only Savior from sin and judgment and hell. So as we bring it to a close this morning, is God's challenge there in verse 12 a challenge for you? Listen to me, he says. Take heed to my words. Forsake your idols and the folly of, ho of hoping in lesser things. On the previous page in, in chapter 45, he says it this way. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Will you turn to him today? Maybe in renewed faith and trust. Maybe we've gotten distracted. We've gotten allured away by the, the sparkliness of an idol. We've placed our hope in lesser things. Will you turn to Him today? Maybe turn to Him for the first time through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son.